You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady, and my co-host is... Scott Peterson. And we have been able to talk about many regions of the world and Southern Baptist work in different time frames. And today we are blessed to have Daryl Cox with us, who will be sharing about uh, his life and ministry in West Africa, along with his wife, Glenda. So, Daryl, welcome to Missions History Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. We're glad that you're here, and especially talking about a region that we We've done some work. We've talked about the life and ministry of Thomas Jefferson Bowen in um, in Nigeria, but we're going to talk more generally about West Africa. But before we get into your missionary service, just kind of give us a little bit of your background and uh, your conversion to Jesus Christ. Well, uh, I was blessed to be born into a Christian home. Both my mother and father were believers and uh, active in church. My dad was career Navy, and uh, we moved all over the country um, about every year and a half or two years, and one of the things that I've always been thankful for is that wherever we went, within one or two weeks, we were members of a Southern Baptist church and and got active right away. Wow. Um, when uh, I was 13, I felt, uh, when I was 11, I uh, I was a member of a church in uh, South Carolina. The pastor met with a group of RAs and shared the gospel clearly with us uh, one evening. And uh, in the following week during a revival service, I gave my heart to Jesus at 11. Amen. Wow. April 24th, 1966. Amen. Um, and uh, a couple of years later, we were stationed in Rhode Island. And uh, most of the church was military up in that area. But uh, a pastor uh, was preaching one evening, and as, as I felt like the Lord was calling me into the ministry at uh, 13. I didn't really see what that was beyond maybe being a preacher, and I didn't really wasn't too excited about that. But uh, anyway, I uh, accepted make public the call to ministry at that age, and it was renewed uh, after that uh, in several different occasions. Did you did you personally know any missionaries, or had you um, uh, been introduced to any missionaries through through books? Uh, actually, actually, I had the only mission education I had was provided through uh, royal ambassadors, RAs. Um, it's not that anybody kept it away from me. I just don't remember hearing missionaries speak as I was growing up in these churches. Right, and so tell me about how you and Glenda met. Uh, we were both students at Cumberland College in Williamsburg, Kentucky, which is it's now called University of the Cumberland. It's a Baptist school, and um, I was a year ahead of her. Um, her daddy was a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, and anyway, we were friends for quite a while before we ever started dating. So, um, so tell us then uh, after college, um, what. What path did the Lord lead you on? Uh, well, uh, Glenda had another year of school. So I, I worked in a factory for a year, and I was a youth director at uh, a church in East Tennessee. 
And uh, as soon as she got her degree, we uh, knew I knew we wanted to go to seminary, and uh, so we went to New Orleans. And um, it was in uh, the first semester of my freshman year. It was the fall of '78 that uh, we were in chapel one day, and a missionary came to speak. I don't remember where he was from. I don't even remember what he said. But from the moment I heard that he was a missionary and speaking, the Lord began dealing in my life right then. Um, and uh, that was the beginning. I went, he, he gave an altar call at the end, and I did not respond publicly. But when I went back home that day, I talked with Glenn and I said, you know, I think this is, this is something we need to, we, we really need to pray about, and we need to maybe look toward this in the future. And, uh, it took a few years, but that's that's how it started. How did you begin in ministry? Did you go straight to the mission field? Did you uh, work in another field after seminary? Uh, yes. Well, I had been a, a part-time youth director at uh, Edgewater Baptist Church when I was in seminary. The same, that's the same church David Platt pastored later on. And um, I was there for, uh, I think, about two and a half years as, as a youth director, and then uh, a youth director in my a, a church in East Tennessee for a while, and but after seminary, I went to uh, Pineville, North Carolina, Stowe Memorial Baptist Church. That name has changed now, and I was Minister of Education and Youth, and was there for almost uh, almost five years. And it was during that time that uh, the Lord really dealt with us, and we left that church to go to the field. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit, um, your missions um, service um, primarily was in um, West Africa. So tell us just a little bit for our listeners, kind of give us an introduction to that region, some of the nations that would be there, and um, culturally, some of the unique factors of West Africa. Well, uh, West Africa, I don't know. I can't even tell you right offhand the number of nations that we consider West Africa, but uh, uh, we uh, we started our career in the country of Liberia, which is one of the only countries in Africa that was never a colony. And uh, for history buffs that might realize that uh, when when some of the when, when some of the slaves were freed in the United States. They were taken back to to Africa and landed along the coast of Liberia and uh, uh, and set set back in their continent and uh, that's just one one sideline there. And, um, and what year was that that y'all arrived in uh, in Liberia? We actually arrived in Liberia in January of 1986. And in Liberia, would uh, what language would you were you ministering in English, or did you have to learn another language? We uh, we did, of course, up until uh, right before we came. It uh, one of the couples that uh, were serving there started learning a local language. Uh, Chris and Glenn Wilkerson that served for a number of years in West Africa. And uh, they were the first ones among Liberian missionaries to to focus on a local language. And uh, we were a 
Linda and I were a part of a group that began studying local languages uh, when they arrived on the field. Other missionaries up until that point have just said, well, there's really no need to. We're just going to focus in English and do that. But we saw a need to uh, at least attempt to communicate in some way in the local language, even if we did not become extremely fluent in it. And we weren't required to. We only had to reach a level that would uh, allow us to, to do the, the basics. But we spent a year studying the Bassa language. Okay. Um, and so tell us about uh, some of the highlights of your ministry in Liberia. Wow. Uh, I, I was assigned the job of being the religious education coordinator for Liberia. And uh, Liberia had a publishing house, and uh, we were publishing Sunday school literature uh, that was not being used in the churches. Um, uh, it was it was just not, Sunday school was just not uh, a a priority among churches in in Liberia at that time. And so my job was to try to promote that, promote Sunday school. And uh, the Baptist Convention in Liberia actually had a, a group called the Liberian Baptist uh, Sunday School Convention. Okay. And they operated separately from the convention. And I became a part of that and got to know the director and became fast friends with her. And uh, we began traveling together. Probably the highlight of my whole, the, the thing that stands out to me is uh, not only was it a time when we saw the Lord work, but that I enjoyed doing a great deal is uh, myself and the Sunday school director, a lady was, at that time I was about 30 years old. She was in her 50s. And then another young man, a Liberian man, we rode on a, a small, uh, small single-engine plane into a bush station in a, in a remote area where we had one single lady working uh, as an evangelist. And uh, she had arranged for the few churches that were in that area to send representatives to come to a Sunday school training workshop. So we had, a, I, I, I believe we, we had this, the best of my memory, we had somewhere around 20 people present at that time, and we spent about three days working on the basics of Sunday school, and a lot of it was stuff that we would teach in uh, the United States, but tried to make it culturally appropriate with the way the illustrations were given, that type of thing. Anyway, uh, we did that workshop, and uh, about a year later, came back, and the number of people had doubled, and we heard testimonies of, of how people from this workshop had gone back and revitalized their Sunday school and even started churches. Well, I'm, I've got a lot of potential questions I could ask you about if you as you talk about that work, but um, the materials that were being published and developed, were they in the national language or were they in English? They were in English. They were in English, okay. Did you and your wife, did you adjust to uh, West Africa quickly? Was that uh, an easy transition, one you enjoyed, or was it a challenge? Uh, there, were, there were challenges. When we arrived there, we had three, we had two preschoolers, and my oldest son was six years old. 
Uh, we had three boys, and uh, they adjusted a lot quicker than we did. But uh, the heat was fairly oppressive, uh, especially in Liberia. Uh, we got had to get used to the in rainy season. Everything would mold if you if you weren't careful. You had to keep lights on in your closets or your clothes and your shoes and everything. Anything that was leather would mold. Um, then there was the the security. Um, we weren't used to where we lived with. I consider them safe places, but in, in Liberia and all of West Africa, people live, most of their homes are fenced in or walled in, and uh, we got used to having a night guard everywhere we lived, and all of those things were were just things you had to, to become accustomed to. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm an MK, and that's, I, I guess, one of the statistics that uh, MKs swap is how many times was your home broken into when you were growing up? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, we, we we had quite a few, so I I understand that and um, the just a different life with bars on your windows and gates and fences and that sort of thing. Um, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit um, from uh, over the course of your ministry. What were some of the roles you mentioned? This was Sunday school training. What are some of the other roles that you had through the years? Well, uh, shortly after we arrived uh, in Liberia, the the man that was director of the publication house left, and so I jumped. I had to take over that, and uh, so I was the director of that publication house. I had I knew nothing about printing machines and or anything about production. That was just not my thing, and uh, somehow things continued to to work, even though. Uh, I was totally inadequate for the job. The Lord knew uh, knew that, and somehow, miraculously, things kept going. Um, in other countries, uh, did the same thing. In another West African country, was the uh, religious education coordinator for a number of years. But I also started branching branching out. I worked in prison ministry. Um, uh, in one of these country, one of the West African countries, and in fact, in, in two of them, uh, regularly went to uh, prisons to to teach or preach. Um, Daryl, are there any to... any stories about um, prison ministry? I've I've done some of that myself, and those have been some really impactful experiences um, on my mind and heart. Are there any stories that come to your mind about your prison ministry? Well, I would say that in, in, in one of the cities where we had an extensive prison ministry for years, it wasn't started by Glenn and I, but uh, we kind of picked up on it. In this, in this particular prison, we served a meal of a a noontime meal every day for over 11 years to wow. prisoners to, to prisoners who were uh, on the sick list. And that usually meant we were feeding about 50 men. And uh, the list, the who got the meals was determined by uh, leadership of the church along with uh, a Catholic nun that served as the nurse for that prison. Uh, she had quite a bit of input and influence on 
telling us who really needed to have the extra food. Uh, we had a pastor, a local pastor, that was the, the person that kind of headed up the program as far as seeing that it got done every day and seeing that the rice was delivered and and that uh, he let us know when there were problems, that type of thing, but it, it worked real well. And as a result of that, we uh, we had a good rapport with the prison warden and the guards, and we were allowed to build a a shelter uh, for a church in the prison courtyard. And on any given Sunday or Thursday, uh, there would be anywhere from 150 to 200 prisoners that would gather for worship. Wow. And it, it was amazing to hear those guys sing. Oh, and, I bet. Uh, they actually dug a baptistry into the ground, lined, lined, dug a hole, lined it with concrete, and would fill it up with water, and that's where we'd do baptisms. And when they weren't doing baptisms, uh, people uh, they would have people from the outside bring them fish, and it served as a fish pond. <laughs> that, that's a great that's a great story. I think uh, I think Daryl, I cut in on you. You'd mentioned the religious education work, you mentioned prison work, but I think you were going to continue. So if you would pick up and tell us some of the other types of ministries you were involved in uh, in your missionary service. Uh, when we uh, had to leave the second country we left in because of uh, civil war and uh, moved to another West African country, uh, we went there as uh, evangelist church planters and were working among an unreached people group. And uh, so that that was a major change for us right there. And that required another language we all together, I think Glenn and I probably studied five different languages. Wow. I don't know, don't know that we mastered any of them as well as we would have liked to, uh, except for French, because uh, we, earned, we learned French early on and used it off and on most of our career. So, Daryl, um, you, you mentioned uh, having to leave a country because of a, a conflict. Uh, one of the things that uh, just uh, piqued my interest, and I think piqued David's interest, is when someone ref- uh, mentioned you as a possible guest for our podcast, is they talked about the number of countries that you had had to leave uh, where you served due to similar events. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, just um, I think you know, if you go back and search out the history of West Africa, you know that uh, most of the time the leadership only changed when there was a political coup of some kind. Right. And uh, in the country of Liberia, and then also it's well known that in Ivory Coast, same type of thing happened. They, there were there were major conflicts, and, and we... Uh, in Liberia, for example, early on, we were actually only there for about four years uh, when we had to, we were evacuated um, with a uh, a plane that was flown in by the U.S. Embassy. And uh, and we never set foot back in Liberia again. Uh, really? We left with uh, one bag apiece uh, and... Uh, I was a little bit naive. My wife had packed up all of our pictures and 
uh, things, and she wanted to take those. And I said, no, we're going to be back in about a month. And we put them back in a footlocker and left them and took some clothes that we really didn't need. And um, and uh, anyway, we lost all of that. In fact, wow. we lost. Yeah, you know, I, I, after missionaries did go back into Liberia, we, we actually got uh, uh, just a few uh, important papers that, that they found strewn, strewn out uh, in on the floor of our home, and they found pictures, not just of us, but of other people, and kind of sifted through, and the ones that they recognized that had us and our children in them, they sent them back to us. So that's about all we, that's what all we had. So did, did you, 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 this pattern of, um, of coups, it continued, is that right? I mean, without necessarily well, going into the names of the countries, how many times did you have to go to a new country? We were, were pretty much led by coups. The Lord led us by uh, that type of thing to leave two different countries. And in both cases, we lost a good bit of everything we owned at that time. Of course, after the first time, we didn't, nothing, nothing had a lot of sentimental value to it at all. When we first went to Liberia, they advised us to take everything we had because, you know, we're making, you're making a new home here and this is where you're going to be for your career. Um, early on, when you came to the field, they, nobody talked about an apprentice program or nobody talked about, you know, serving a couple of terms, you came, it was kind of hammered in that you were going to stay there for your career, right. your life. And so we took, we brought everything and, uh, and we lost just about everything. And then, so the second time it happened was about, uh, uh well, it was about eight years later and, uh, basically the same thing happened. Only this time we were able to return to that country and actually go back to the house that we lived in. Um, and um, there was conflict still going on, but it had quieted down. And uh, uh, we, uh, going back to that uh, house, uh, we realized, well, uh, we realized that uh, we were not going to be able to go. I realized we weren't going to be able to go back ever there again, but I, I never expected to be able to actually see it again and see that community again. But it, the Lord worked that out. Uh, when we got back there, rebels uh, that had taken over that section of the country were living in our home. In fact, wow. there were three different families in the three different rooms in that house. Of your house. Wow. <laughs> and the man that uh, was our... A good friend that had invited us to the village had taken everything out of our house that he could and moved it into a a storeroom that the uh, village used. And uh, he, when we went to his house, he he had had I slept on my own mattress because he had put it in his house and sat on my own couch because he had moved it up there and. Uh, and he and he worked it out to where we could go back into our old house. And I got some books out that I belong to, that belonged to me. And uh, the families were in there, and they just watched as I walked around my house and picked a few things off the wall, 
that I wanted. And uh, of course, they had rearranged everything. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny while I walked through the den living room. They had a television set up and they were watching something on our old television. And uh, they asked me if I could fix the TV so they could see it better. So I moved the antenna and adjusted things for them and got them settled. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was a, a unique situation. But uh, the Lord had given us the house and let us be there, and uh, we, uh, we just knew that he was in control of all things. Well, Daryl, you've been talking about um, a transition to work in another country, and as we were talking offline uh, a little bit ago, you were talking about uh, the interesting things and about how you got to a particular village and the work there. Why don't you share with our, our listeners a little bit about that? Well, in, in the country of Ivory Coast, we were working in the area of religious education, and there were established churches, um, Baptist churches, all over the southern half of uh, of Ivory Coast. And uh, it was about that time that the, the IMB the, uh, inaugurated a program called New Directions, and the idea was that uh, we would do anything— whatever it takes to, to reach lost, uh, unreached people groups. So that was in 1997 and, uh, then, right? Right. That's correct. And, um, so, uh, we were basically given a choice at that time. Uh, we could continue to work in the area of religious education and be seconded to the Ivorian Baptist convention. Uh, or we could, uh, adopt or choose to work among uh, an unreached people group, uh, maybe right even in the country. Uh, we were surprised to learn that learn that uh, that less than an hour from where we had been living for seven or eight years, there was the there was a group of people that uh, were listed as the most unevangelized people group in the entire country of Ivory Coast. They were fairly small, only numbering about 40,000, but uh, we, when we realized that, we felt led to head in that direction, so we actually drove out to that area. There was a brand-new paved road that went from the city we were living in to that area. It took about an hour to drive there, and then at the end of it, and then the road, the pavement just ended. And that was where this people group were the primary, that was the primary area where they were focused. Well, on the, there were two or three villages right on the paved road, right at the end of the route. And uh, we noticed that there were electric lines going into these two villages. And we just assumed that God was going to lead us to live in a village that had electricity. Why not? <laughs> I mean, we, uh, on two or three occasions, drove up to that area, and we would find a place to park, and we'd get out and walk around. Um, we did not speak that local language. We spoke French, but a lot of these folks were did not use French as their primary language. So we uh, greeted people, but we, didn't, we weren't. Uh, there was no welcome wagon by any means, and uh, most people were just curious about why we were there. Um, we walked around and looked and were praying and said, Lord, is this the place? And, and uh, 
we go from that one village down the road about five five kilometers to the other village that had electric lines and walked around that one and and we in the first time we went we didn't really sense anything didn't see anything that impressed us as far as a place we could live and uh anyway we went back home and went back another time and actually did that about three times and we're getting pretty i don't want to use the word discouraged but that's the word that comes to mind and wondering what we were going to do i think it was a third or fourth time on our trip we had gone to we had really tried to hit every area of this one village uh i think the village probably had three or four thousand people in it it was very large. It was the largest one for that people group. Um, anyway, we were in the back side of this village, and this man uh, flagged us down. We were in our truck, and he—that's his—it had never happened in the other trip. Nobody had ever stopped us. Nobody had ever initiated the greeting. And what he did you think when he started flagging you down? Uh, I didn't—I didn't know what to think. But he just waved his arms and. Uh, he was smiling, so we weren't afraid or anything. Okay. But uh, he walked up to the, the side of the, walked up to the side of the truck and said, and basically he asked me, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Well, uh, we're people of God, and and God has told us to come live here." And he looked at me and said, "You want to live here?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, get out of your truck. Let me show you some places." So we got out of the car and uh, the truck and walked with him and he showed us a couple of homes he knew seemed like he knew everybody there and everybody knew him um and so after a few after just a little while he said well, why don't you come to my house and I, we said okay so he was on his moto and we got back in our truck and followed him and he lived in a village that was between the two villages that we'd been going back and forth on this paved road and his village was on the paved road, too. A uh, little village called uh, Babadugu. Uh, and we got off in his village and sat down on the front porch. And uh, uh, he sent one of his sons to go get us some Cokes. And they came back. And when they came back, they were hot. So we realized that uh, there was no electricity in this village we were in, but we drank hot coke, and everybody that walked by, he'd say, "Hey, come up here and meet our strangers." And uh, people would come up and and they'd greet us. And after about you know, thirty minutes or so, we excused ourselves, and he said, "Well, uh, I want you to come back and visit me again." So we promised we would. This guy's name was Bazumana Bakayoko from the village of Babadugu. Wow. I'm not even going to try and repeat that. <laughs> So we uh, came back about a week later. Instead of going to the other places, we came directly to his place. And, and of course, he was happy to see us again. We sat on his porch for a minute. And then a couple of the elders came by and sat with us. And he said, we decided that we want you to live in our village. And we said, oh, well, all right. He said, he said come on, we'll show you some houses. He said, uh, you just tell us. You know, we'll show you some, but he said, if you see a house you like and somebody's living it, you tell us, we'll move them out. Oh, my. <laughs> and, a little twist and, on the Macedonian call there. So we uh, we found a house that uh, 
the couple of houses that we thought we could work with, uh, they were not, neither one of them were completed. Uh, they were in various stages of construction. And he, and, and finally we said, well, which house do you think we ought to live in? And we wound up choosing the one that, uh, that, uh, they chose for us, and we moved in. And it turned out that uh, this particular village was one of the most influential ones for the entire people group. It's a small village, but but the people that lived there were considered the sages, and they were considered. It was a, it was the village where if there was a problem among the people group, people would come to that village to get the problem solved. Wow! And because and because of this man that had invited us there, we uh, were adopted by him. We took on his name as our African name, and uh, we had access to every village. All we had to do was say, oh, yeah, we're we're from this particular village, and you know him, and they said, oh, yeah, 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 come on in, and that that was the way it was the entire uh, four, four and a half years that we were there. Wow, and so uh, did you work with anyone else in that in that ministry among those villages and with that particular people group? Well, shortly after we arrived there, there was a volunteer uh, team that had come to do, they were doing a countrywide survey trying to find a place where God, they felt like God could use them to partner. And they were looking for a people groups to adopt and missionaries to work with. And when they arrived in our particular village, uh, we, we knew they were coming and, and uh, we had told our, our hosts and, and some of our people that were there that they were coming. And, and when they arrived, the, the village had come out to greet them and they had the music instruments were playing and the women were dancing and, uh, the men had dressed up, and I mean, it was a big deal. We didn't realize that was going to happen ourselves, but we wound up on the front porch at our friend's house again and uh, drank hot coke again. And uh, uh, one of the spiritual elders that were there uh, basically uh, said, we don't know what God has called these people to do, or why they come exactly, but we pray that God will bless it. And uh, the that that team before they before they left our home and they only stayed for a few hours had already said this is it. This is this is where God wants us to be. And and where and was they? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was I was going to say where was that team from? They were from Jonesboro, Arkansas, and Central I, Baptist. And they continued to work with that people group uh, for quite some time, didn't they? Uh, as far as I know, I haven't talked with anybody from, uh, well, I talked with uh, one of the guys that I that used to come uh, late last year uh, on the phone. I hadn't talked to them in a while. But uh, as they are still sending teams to work among that people group. When we were there, uh, uh, there were nobody came to Christ during the time we were there. Uh, there were no no believers in our village. And um, there, the believers that were in the area were of other ethnic groups. Um, 
In fact, I, I said this particular people group was the least evangelized in the, the country, and they followed another world religion, and uh, they were pretty staunch in their you know, walk with this other world religion. Uh, after about four and a half years of living there, there was a civil war that came to that country. We were actually in the States on our stateside assignment when the country pretty much closed and most of our people evacuated from the country. Uh, the area that we lived in, we're living in, was taken over by rebels. And uh, so when it came time for us to return to the field, it was impossible for us to go back to where we were living. It was still dangerous in that area. And we transferred to another country. Darryl, and it was another... Daryl, how did... Um, how And Scott has mentioned this earlier. How did you and Glenda... Um, um, what were some of the ways that the Lord helped you through those transitions? Because I'm sure that had to be um, discouraging to sort of be investing in a place with a people, with a particular focus, and then to have to move and then move again. Well, I think it may not be the, the answer you would think, but the thing that had helped, helped me, and I think even Glenda, is the fact that all of our lives, we had moved anyway. Uh, because of my dad's career in the Navy, I was used to living someplace a year and a half or two years and then moving. And even even when we uh, served the church in North Carolina before coming to the field, we were there less than five years and lived in two different places while we were there. So the act, the act of actually moving uh, felt normal and, to you. And, being uprooted and, you know, well, we got to make new friends and new acquaintances and start over again someplace else. Uh, we were, and her daddy was a, a Southern Baptist minister, and even though she didn't move as often as I did, she still had lived in several different states, several different cities, and had made some pretty traumatic moves like in her last year of high school. So those kind of things, we were used to it. So God had used your your upbringing to prepare you for what he had for your ministry overseas. We, we both definitely felt that way. Yes. Are there any, when you think back over your years of service, are there any stories, sort of key stories, key people that you'd like to share with us about? Yes. Uh, one of them obviously would be the one I shared with you earlier about uh, Mr. Boz, Bozumana, the man that invited us to that village. Yes. Um, uh, quite often he would uh, he would come to our house and just sit and and uh, we would drink coffee or tea together and and uh, he would uh, we knew what was going on in the village through him and God used him and in, in uh, ways that uh, to get us into different places and access to different people it, it never would have happened if it uh, if he was the he was the way God got us into these other villages. And we had numerous volunteer teams that came out from from the church in Jonesboro, and we actually had other volunteers come also. And when we would go to, when we were able to go to other villages, and we tried every kind of volunteer work we could think of, from, from dental clinics to puppets to just anything we could think of that would allow us to, to share truth from God's, God's Word with this particular people group. It was because of Bazamana 
that uh, we were able to get into these places. Sometimes he had to talk them into letting us come. And literally, it came down to like that. Because even though we did not, we never used the term, we never called ourselves missionaries, everybody knew who we were. Right. And even though uh, we never talked, used the word evangelism in our speaking to them, Numerous times I heard people talking and say, oh, these guys are here to evangelize us. They they knew what we were there for. But Boz opened the doors for us, or God opened the doors through him. Daryl, that's, that's a wonderful story. And as we try to think about sort of the whole scope of your of your time as, as working as a missionary, what are some of the spiritual lessons that, as you reflect on it, that um, the Lord really taught you and Glenda? Um, well, first of all, there were two two things that. First of all, we 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 realized that even though we had been told we needed to be flexible, we we early on realized that uh, that just because we felt God call us to a certain place, it didn't necessarily mean it was always going to be that way. Uh, we wound up serving in four different countries while we were there, and, and plus spending a year in France. And when we left to come to the field, we thought we were going to uh, spend all of our career in the country of Liberia, and it just didn't work out that way. Flexibility is important, and that uh, God can use you wherever you are, and he, he wants you to be obedient and ready to go and do whatever he wants you to do. And sometimes he uses conflict to lead you. Wow, uh, that's a good word. The other thing that uh, really stands out to me is that in many places, and quite a few places, uh, we served for years and didn't see anything as far as we didn't see people come to Christ. Uh, we, uh, the area, that village we went to in Ivory Coast, uh, among that people group, we lived there for four and a half years and nobody came to Christ. But when we were able to come back with the volunteer teams that were still continuing to go into that area for a visit. It was on one of those trips that our friend Bazumana uh, accepted Christ as his Savior. It was 10 years wow. before. Uh, he died about a year after that. From what we understand, he probably came out with malaria or something like that. But since that time, there have been two I know at least two churches that have been started by those volunteers that continue to go back, and they baptized over 30 people. Amazing. Uh, and so I remember early on, our, uh, sometime in our career, I think it was Clyde Metter talked about, he talked about the left side of the graph. Mm-hmm. And he was, was showing how, how in, uh, in a lot of places the work was fairly flat and level for a number of years before there was ever any noticeable change. And uh, and he, he just encouraged some of us that were serving in hard places not to be concerned about being on that left side of the graph because you have to start somewhere. And uh, I believe that's where God used us in, a, in several different places. It seemed like we were on the left side of the graph. No, that that seed that you planted, that others continue to water, and then God gave the increase. That that fits very well right there. 
Daryl, um, one of the things I wanted to say as we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast is just um, in talking to um, the person who sent, recommended your you um, to speak about your ministry, the thing that they just emphasized was just how, um, it, as not only working with the people, the, the, the nationals and the different people groups, but you also, uh, you and your wife, really spent time trying to disciple and be a blessing to fellow missionaries. And uh, that's some, one side of the coin that sometimes people don't realize, but uh, how important um, that, that uh, ministry of teamwork and of encouragement among missionaries is and how younger missionaries really need to be discipled and, and have role models in, in others who've been there longer. Uh, that was a great privilege. We we certainly did enjoy getting to uh, work as in that role. We I, in the last country we served, I was I supervised at different times. There were as many as eight teams that were there. Most, but uh, that number dwindled because of uh, political conflicts. And but uh, during that last term. In that particular country, we had to evacuate that country one time because of some unrest. We were able to come back a couple of weeks later, but um, because Glenn and I had already evacuated countries before, we sort of knew the drill and uh, uh, were able to, I think, help and be a, a little bit of a stabilizing factor, especially to those that had young children, because we had gone through that with our own children and and knew. And, and could say from experience, this is, you know, we, we knew what they were feeling. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so I don't think, I don't think anything ex- as far as our experience is concerned in our early years was ever wasted as far as how it could apply and help us to, to deal with those situations in the lives of other people later on. That's God knew one. all of that. Daryl, thank you so much for being our guest on Missions History Podcast, and uh, we appreciate uh, you taking the time to share with us about your missionary experiences. Well, thank you. And for Missions History Podcast, I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.